I am eager to introduce to you our guest preacher for today, my good friend, the Reverend Dr. Gary Mason. He is the most prolific advocate for peace with justice that I know. And his efforts to resolve conflict and work toward justice have taken him around the world, including his home country of Northern Ireland, as well as the Middle East and here in the United States. Gary played a central role in the formation of the Good Friday Peace Accord, which ended the religious and sectarian violence in Northern Ireland, known as the Thirty Years' War. And he uses those principles as the founder and director of Rethinking Conflict. A few years ago, I had the privilege of spending a week with Gary in Belfast with other Florida clergy colleagues, and the lessons that we learned continue to shape my thinking and my ministry today. Gary has preached for us a few times in the past, and we had originally scheduled him to be with us in person today. So he joins us from a distance, ready to offer a powerful sermon on Micah 6.8 and draw to a close our journey through the Old Testament this week. It is my great honor to have us welcome Gary Mason. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gary. McGray, it's wonderful to be here. I'm actually, believe it or not, looking out at a sunny Belfast, which, as you know, having been here, is a little bit of a novelty. Now, 70 to 75 Fahrenheit is a hot day in Belfast, so that's what I'm experiencing. Not Floridian temperatures, but it's a hot day, and I'm delighted to be back with you at Hyde Park, and I bring you greetings from Belfast and from the Irish Methodist Church, and for my wife Joyce and I. Let me begin by making a confession. I have never, ever done a tweet. Even though people tell me we live today in a 140-character world. But perhaps in looking at this text today, maybe I'm slowly coming to the realisation that good things come in pretty small packages. Because this verse is pretty short. He has told you, O mortal, what is good, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, uh, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. There's an incredible amount to say about what is a pretty short verse. Initially, we see there the balance between the structures of sacred obligation. It has been told to you. And the freedoms of audacious inquiry that God requires from you. The Jewish theologian and rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel has had a profound influence in my life. And his people who live in the US, as you know, he walked with Martin Luther King Jr. during the civil rights movement in the 60s. He said this, the shallowness of our moral comprehension, the incapacity to sense the depth of misery caused by our own failures is a simple fact of fallen humanity, which no explanation can justify or hide. Uh, one of my daily traditions or rituals is every evening, invariably, Joyce and I watch the BBC News at 10 o'clock. I'm watching it the other evening, a young woman was interviewed after that dreadful explosion in Beirut. She said this, 
I simply want out of Lebanon. I'm sick of religion. I am sick of politics. And I'm sick of fighting. I perfectly understood her sentiments. And as I look in the church in the West at the moment, I've often wrestled with this pastoral on the one hand, which is crucial, versus the prophetic on the other hand. And if I was to make a plea today to the Western church, I so much want us to recover that cutting prophetic edge of ministry. Again, to quote Abraham Joshua, he said, a prophet is a person who feels fiercely. God has thrust a burden upon his soul and they are bowed and stunned at humanity's fierce greed. Prophecy is the voice God has lent to silent agony. God is raging in the prophet's words. So we need to hear this text today because trust me, the prophets really do speak for God. God has observed this. This is what God wants announced today. A preacher of another generation humorously said we should preach with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. And then I look at your space at the moment, the space that means so much to me called the United States, a space that has shaped me now for 33 years of my life. And as you wrestle with your legacies, as I continue to wrestle with my legacy in this troubled island of Ireland, I want us to hear together these words of Micah. Now we all know the slogan of Nike very, very well. So my sermon is a just do it sermon. I'm just telling you, just do justice, just do kindness, just do humility. So we begin with that phraseology, just do justice. I know how your nation struggles with legacy and under no circumstances do I come to make any person feel guilty, but I know firsthand having lived through a religious sectarian conflict in my space, how religion and toxic politics, if they are allowed to take root and flourish, they are lethal. And I've watched your space Sometimes from a distance, but sometimes being there firsthand. And wrestle with that legacy of slavery and that legacy of racism. And you and I both know if, if we're honest, I mean, as I said in a lecture a couple of days ago to some students at Emory, truth that is buried cannot be repented of. And so historically and far too often, Faith communities are silent, complicit, or even apologists for racial inequality. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn once commented, the line separating good and evil don't pass through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either. But right through every human heart and through all human hearts. So I want to suggest, graciously and hopefully humbly, that we need to take the sin of racism with the gravity and the seriousness it actually deserves. 
One thing that has encouraged me immensely as I look at your space, that isn't just black people who are marching for racial equality, white people, not just Americans, Europeans, Asians, and Africans. Because ultimately this fight for equality is actually not about black versus white. It's about right versus wrong. It's about doing justice. But Micah doesn't stop there because he moves on and he gives us another just do it. And he says just do kindness and the word he uses for mercy is the word hesit. And in the Old Testament it's a word most closely associated with God's loving kindness expressed in the covenant which is really the basis of his relationship with humankind. It's a kind of steadfast, strong, steady love that always seeks to express itself in action. The word there is action. And I don't need to remind you as citizens of the United States today the lingering effects of the health of many, many black people. We're more prone to mental diseases such as dementia, and Alzheimer's than the rest of the population. And so we ask the question, I mean, what can an act of kindness actually look like? I was meant to go to Asheville in North Carolina for the first time ever a few months ago. I was in Atlanta and I didn't make it because of the COVID-19. We returned back to the island of Ireland early. But I noticed there in mid-July that the city council took an incredibly historic step to repair centuries of racial prejudice by unanimously voting to provide reparations. On that Tuesday night in July, they apologized to its black residents for the city's role in slavery, discrimination, housing practices, and other racist policies throughout it's history. And they said, we are going to help people. We are going to increase minority home ownership, minority business ownership and career opportunities. We are going to put in strategies to grow equity and generational wealth, according to this city council resolution. We do repent of our sin, but can I suggest or ask even, is repentance enough? I read a brilliant theological exposition a few weeks ago about Zacchaeus. You know the story, a tiny little man, tax collector, Jericho, a collaborator with the occupying Roman authority, plundered the wealth of his neighbours, enriched himself. Jesus encounters him, shocks the neighbours by going to his home. And you know his wonderful statement, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'm going to multiply that by four. Now let's be honest. Zacchaeus did not personally design the unjust system of Roman taxation. Now he hadn't denounced it either, but he participated in it, he profited from it. But he didn't merely repent of his ways, he made restitution. And there is a fund I read about in Atlanta called the 
Zacchaeus Fund. We're Christians who believe that African Americans have been subject to four centuries of injustice and plunder are saying, we need to begin to do our humble part to make it right. So a majority black committee assigns the funds to support rising black leaders in the church and in the marketplace. It may not be enough, but it's something. But could you imagine if there were churches across all of the United States? In every city where believers were giving sacrificially so that our brothers and sisters could be restored and our neighbours could experience a Christ-like love that would make a difference in the marketplace. The final thing I want to highlight before pulling this together is another just do it. So just do a humble walk with God. I must confess one of my favourite quotations on humility, and I know you'll smile, uh, Goldie Marier, who's a former Prime Minister of Israel, the only woman Prime Minister of Israel ever, was uh, pretty well known for some of her brilliant caustic quotations. Uh, my favourite one is where she said to someone, don't be humble, you're not that great. The New York Times said an article there in the not too distant past entitled Humility is not what it used to be. As a matter of fact, it suggests it may be the exact opposite of what it's used to mean. They said literally it's pro forma, possibly even mandatory for politicians, athletics, celebrities who stand up and hold a little gong or whatever and say, I'm vigorously humbled by every honour awarded, prize won, job offered, record broken, pound lost. Comedians are humbled by big laughs. Yoga practitioners are humbled by achieving difficult poses. Athletes are humbled by good days on the field. And Christmas volunteers are humbled by their own jesserunity and their holiday spirit. But as the New York Times says, none of these people sound very humbled at all. They seem exceedingly proud of themselves, hashtagging their humility, advertising their own status, success, sprightliness, generosity, moral superiority and luck. And the New York Times concludes with the question, when did humility get so cocky and vain glorious? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. The person who makes himself nothing, he takes on the form of a servant being made in human likeness. Can you imagine what would happen if the focus of your life and my life was doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with our God? And I know you've been in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament for eight months. And I know you're going to have a shift of emphasis and Hyde Park United Methodist Church over the next few weeks and 
You're anticipating embracing Jesus again. But let me finish with a quotation from uh, Dorothy Sayers. Uh, Dorothy Sayers wasn't one of the Inklings, but was on the fringes of the Inklings, that very intellectual group that met in pubs in Oxford, people like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and others. But here's what Dorothy Sayers says about a Nessie called the Disturbing Jesus. She says, the people who hang Christ to do them justice never accused them of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought them too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround them with an atmosphere of tedium. She suggests we have a very efficiently purred the claws of the land of Judah, certified a meek in mind and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and little pious old ladies. But to those who knew him, he in no way suggested a milk and water person. They objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. True, he was tender to the unfortunate, patient with honest inquires, humble before heaven, but he insulted respectable clergymen by calling them hypocrites. He referred to Keen Herd as that fox. He went to parties in disreputable company and was looked upon as a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. He displayed a paradoxical humour that affronted serious-minded people. And he retorted by asking disagreeable, searching questions that couldn't just be answered by a rule of thumb. So this Jesus that you'll encounter in the months ahead, as Dorothy Sayer says, was not a dull man in his human lifetime. And so there's nothing dull about God either. But she finishes with this profound sentence. She said he had a daily beauty in his life that made us ugly, and officialdom felt that the established order of things would be more secure without him. So they did away with God in the name of peace and quietness. So what does the Lord require of you? What does this disturbing Jesus require of you? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Amen. Thank you so much, Gary, for those deeply rich and powerful insights from Micah for our time. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, you have created us for a greater purpose than just our own self-interest. You call us to participate in your grand cosmic work of restoring this broken world back to its original wonder. So empower us to be our best selves, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before you. Amen.